this is Ken Feith with the Metro Archives, and today I'm here with Mark Thompson. He's a living history interpreter. Uh, Mark, I know Mark many years, and he's uh, a student of America's wars and America's military. And this year, especially um, 2017, April of this year, um, the United States uh, went to war with Imperial Germany. So uh, today we're, we'd be at war with Germany for about six or seven months. And I was have Mark here today to talk about um, Tennessee and the United States uh, coming into the war, some of the Tennesseans that were involved in it. Um, Mark, we um, we uh, declared war in April, I think, April? Um, yes, we declared war April 6, 1917. Uh, there had been a movement afoot for, um, for several years. Uh, I mean, right after the war began in August of 1914, there were certain members of the American public that wanted us to go to war. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was one of the biggest. <laughs> oh, he would be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Leonard Wood, and they would. They became, uh, well, there was a preparedness movement that was sweeping the country at that time. And they started, a, the first camp was in Plattsburgh, New York. Hmm. And in that, so every camp after that was simply referred to as Plattsburgh camps. Hmm. Uh, the regular army referred to these as tired businessmen camps. <laughs> uh, because of, if you were a young man in your 20s, uh, you paid your own way, you paid for uniforms, you showed up. And the, the idea was if you gave them a month to train, you know, you would learn land navigation, you would learn basic drill and ceremonies, basic marksmanship, that if we did go to war, we would have a ready pool of young men who could be commissioned as officers. So this was like a forerunner of ROTC? Yeah, forerunner of ROTC, yeah. Okay. yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, so they were, uh, you know, and Wilson had ran in 1916, in the, the uh, presidential election, his whole thing was he kept us out of war. <laughs> that was his campaign slogan. And um, 1917, when war was declared, of course, Theodore had desperately wanted to get involved. And you know, his, his health was poor. He, was, uh, he would be dead within three years anyway. But uh, he was kind of getting up there. Yeah, and he was too. not the young man he was yeah. in 1898 yeah. <laughs> on, at, at Kettle Hill. And... Um, Leonard Wood was also not in good health, and there was a political cartoon at the time of the two of them standing there looking very you know, despondent and said, well, at least he kept us out of war. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of funny that, that Wilson ran on that ticket, mm-hmm. and then less than a year later, you know, we're declaring war on Germany. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it looks like Germany had a, had a, a phenomenal diplomatic flub mm-hmm. with um, pulling in the Zimmerman telegram and then unrestricted warfare, submarine warfare. And so we really got rolling, I guess, with the Plattsburgh camps. But you say we knew, we kind of figured this was coming. We had a number of people within the War Department, you know, some forward-thinking people felt like we were going to get involved in this war. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back to the Spanish-American War, that's our first time, you know, that we actually go overseas to fight what would be considered an imperial power, imperial mm-hmm. Spain. Um and when it's over with, it puts us on the world stage. Mm-hmm. And there a lot of European powers, a lot of people in Europe, well, when's the United States going to get involved? Why won't they pitch in? And uh, we felt like, you know, that was that was Europe's problem. It wasn't our problem. Well, I could see that, especially uh, given we're kind of isolationist anyway, mm-hmm. and we still have the oceans, and yeah. it's still um, sea travel. And so and the other thing I thought was interesting about this is, when the ramp up to the war and then after we declare it and we're trying to push to get men in the service, it's not so much helping out the English 
as it is, uh, we need to go help France. We need mm-hmm. to save democracy. And France was a democracy. And it seems like that there wasn't much, well, yeah, Britain's in it too. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking with, especially the United States, with a heavy Irish population and heavy, um, there just wasn't a whole lot of help for the British. It was mostly a French. Two of the major concerns that the War Department and the Wilson administration had were, were number one, how would this large Irish-American immigrant population react if we would be, you know, we're, if we're on the side of the British? And also, actually, the largest immigrant population in the country at the time could trace their roots back to Germany. Germany. And there was a, a you know, are, are these people going to, are they going to support us, their new country? Or are they going to, you know, revert back to their fatherland? Well, you know, if you look at um, uh, immigration into the United States mm-hmm. from, say, 1900 to uh, 1910, a little before the war, a lot of these, you're right, I mean, there's a lot of Germans, mm-hmm. there's a lot of Irish, there's a lot of, mm-hmm. so I can see how the United States was kind of, well, you know, mm-hmm. and especially in Germans, they're, they're like fighting their cousins, you know, yeah. and so it's just interesting. Well, you know, Germantown here. Well, yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, they how many, they had, what, two or three German language newspapers up until 1917, had yeah. their own Oompa band, <laughs> and then oddly enough, all that went away. It seemed like it really mm-hmm. crashed, and um, so it's just interesting how that came along and trying to get up anti-German sentiment mm-hmm. in uh, in Tennessee, and um, so Tennesseans. Um, so this would be, let's see, from April to November, but we we weren't really over there yet. We were still ramping up, and mm-hmm. and could you talk a little about the Tennesseans and um, Tennessee? Okay, when we go back to you know the April sixth, we've declared mm-hmm. war. Um, it was almost as if no one in the Wilson administration had actually stopped to think, <laughs> okay, we've declared war. How are we going to raise How this army? This? <laughs> How are we going uh, – where are we going to train these troops once we've raised this army? And how are we going to equip this army? And even more importantly, how are we going to get this army overseas? Because hmm. you got to go to Europe. They're not going to come to us. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that's another thing with the, you know, we our merchant marine was being used primarily to transport grains hmm. and foodstuffs to the British. And the British did not want that to stop. <laughs> they, you know, we've got our people have to eat. And they did not want that to stop. Hmm. Um, and the, we had a very small standing army, which we tend, tend to always have right before a war. Mm-hmm. The National Guard, it's after the Spanish-American War, you begin to see the move from the militia to the National Guard. Mm-hmm. And and when we with the creation of the National Guard, the federal government has a little bit more control over them. I mean, they're under the control of the governor, but they can the federal government can federalize them. They mm-hmm. can order them to be called up to active duty. Okay. Um, and so probably 100,000 National Guardsmen roughly were federalized mm-hmm. for the punitive expedition in 1916 on the Mexican border. And in the case of Tennessee National Guardsmen, they came home around March the 24th, 1917. And, mm-hmm. you know, so do the math, April 6th, you know, we're declaring war. Um, now, the War Department felt, rather erroneously, with their standing army, with the National Guard and with what they referred to as the rush to the colors, mm-hmm. that we would have, you know, this we would, we would be able to handle it's it. Huge thing. Yeah. But by the first of June, I think there'd only been roughly seventy three, seventy four thousand men had enlisted. Mm-hmm. So we passed the Selective Service Act of nineteen seventeen, and I think it was June fifth was the day. Mm-hmm. Every young man between the ages of twenty one and thirty was had to go in and register for the draft. 
And so really, that's where the, the draft got started. It got started. The Selective Service mm-hmm. Act of World yeah. War One. And it you know it's different than the Civil War draft because you know in the Civil War you could have someone you could use a, a substitute you could pay someone to go in your place. Um, you know this is that they're not going to do that now. In the uh, War Powers, well, it's not the War Powers Act, but the uh, War Appropriations Bill, there were still a number of men in Congress that were Span Am veterans and a few Civil War veterans, and they felt the president should call for the forming of volunteer units. Hmm. And, you know, wow, this is the way we've done it since Lexington and Concord. And, you know, the War Department did not want that because hmm. their attitude was this is a different type of war. We don't need a man that has no military experience at all just b- b- because he's a community leader forming a, you know, kind of like the, <laughs> well, you, you true, think, yeah. think Civil War. Well, we elect Ed, Ed the, you know, <laughs> because he's a banker. Exactly. Um, and, you, you know, we don't need officers to get their position by election. We need real officers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but to mollify these, and Wilson did not want it, the War Department did not want it, hmm. but to mollify these men, they said, well, they wrote it into the bill that if the president felt that there was a need, he could ask for 100,000 volunteer militia troops a year. Hmm. And these men were mollified. They voted for the act. And, of course, you know, Wilson never called for them. And the War well, Department never, never called, called for them. Called for them. <laughs> but, but you got it passed. Yeah, yeah you got yeah. it passed. Um, July 25th, well, in the buildup, to July 25th. July 25th, sort of the date. That's uh, that's a regular date for National Guard troops because that's the date that the War Department gives the order to federalize National Guard troops. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing about that order is the troops are to report to their training camps as they are made ready. That doesn't mean when the troops are ready. It means whenever we have actually found a place for you to train. Well, the camp is really <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, one That's soldier wrote home, I joined to fight the Kaiser, not clear land. You know, <laughs> I left the farm for this. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so the National Guard had learned from going back to the punitive expedition. Mm-hmm. One of the things, well, the, the Army had learned that the National Guard could be depended on. Mm-hmm. Uh, with extra training, with the proper equipment, they could be, I guess the phrase we use in today's military is force multiplier. Mm-hmm. But they could be depended on. The, um, the National Guard, they learned something from the regular Army, and that is if your unit is not at full strength, one of two things is going to happen to your unit. It could either be disbanded mm-hmm. and your men used as replacements and scattered to the four winds, or they could brigade you with two or three other units to form another unit. And, you mm-hmm. know, the thing with the, the, the National Guard, and it does harken back to the old days of the militia, it's local men. It's local. You, you're serving with right. your family, your friends. And so the National Guard, uh, one of their – right after April 6th, there's a big push. I mean, right down here downtown, April 7th, boom, there's recruiting booths out and the whole thing was serve with the officers and men you know, yeah. you know, and because they were really, you know, these National Guard officers, they weren't dumb, but, you know, they knew, look, we've, the more men we have in this unit, the better bargaining chip we have when we get called active duty. And then that happens July 25th, and the Tennessee units report to Camp Severe in South Carolina Roughly, they start reporting the end of August, and by September 12th, they're all there. Well, I mean, really, if with such a small army to begin with, and then all this ramps up, that's not much time to get everything ready and get these camps set and get the men start training. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that they would they start recruiting in Nashville and all these mm-hmm. big cities, and, and it's interesting how they uh, 
the officer corps could use the numbers of their men as kind of mm-hmm. leverage to get a good post or get a oh, good yeah. assignment or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So they, they get down to camps, like Camp Severe, I guess. Um, it was mostly the 30th Division was raised out of Tennessee mm-hmm. and the Carolinas, I guess. Yeah, yeah the, the North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee National Guards were there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, and they, but that time, though, they were still talking about the, um, the state, like it's it's not like you say it's not wasn't necessarily a uh, uh, a regiment raised like the Civil War would mm-hmm. be, but it's it's close to that yeah. as far as mm-hmm. so this war is really kind of a it seems like it kind of bridges the two centuries there between oh. the thoughts of the nineteenth century and then they're coming up against the twentieth century in a, a modern era I guess yeah. and so so these guys are down at Camp Severe and they're down there. Uh, would the 30th go from there, and then would they uh, go overseas from there? They train mm-hmm. down there and then go? Yeah. Now, most of your guard units, you know, they, wherever they lo- they, they reported when they, were to their, when they were federalized on July 25th, mm-hmm. they report to their local armory or whatever. And I know in my hometown in East Tennessee, they actually camped for a month on the grounds of a college, <laughs> a two-year college that was there at church school. Um, the first Tennessee— if you go out to uh, to Bell Mead uh, into the Percy Warner Park, mm-hmm. and as you bear to the right to go up, um, there's a restored marker on the left, and it will be really? uh, the first Tennessee when they came home from the punitive expedition and their call back to service. They that's where they were garrisoned for quite some time. They called it Camp Andrew Jackson, <laughs> uh, and they were there. And then we had this great fear of saboteurs. You know, mm-hmm. so the first Tennessee is parceled out all across Middle Tennessee to guard railroad bridges hmm. and factories and, and you know, bridges across rivers, whatever. And then they're brought back to Camp Andrew Jackson, and then they go from there to Camp Severe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. They thought there was going to be some kind of sabotage oh, yeah. mm-hmm. or some kind of you know, and, and um, especially in, in Tennessee, it's so rural. You know. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, the overwhelming like, majority of people here are from Scottish-Irish background, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and they, they all know one another. I mean, mm-hmm. a stranger in town would be yeah. noticeable, you know, if you're going to— With an odd accent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with well, an odd accent, you know, I'm going to blow the bridge up, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, well, so they, they get back to camp, and then mm-hmm. um, uh, from there, they'd be sent overseas. And um, so we, we got to France, and then we trained a little bit in France, and then um, they uh, the, the 30th— um, I guess would be moved into a combat zone, or they would go. Well, the the thirtieth division and the twenty seventh infantry division, which mm-hmm. was a New York National Guard division. Oh wow! Uh, that yeah, interestingly enough, um, uh, they they're in a very unique position as far as all the army divisions in in World War One. Um, when you got overseas, when division and actually the thirtieth division landed in England first. Hmm. And then went across the channel into France. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they get there, the uh, you know, I mean, they've been, the British and the French have been sending instructors over, NCOs, officers, oh, okay. Okay. to try to get us up to speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're still these guys still aren't ready for trench warfare. So a lot of units that trained with the French would go down into the southern part of the because you know, like they say, you know, they had this vast trench network that stretched basically from the Swiss border to the North Sea. Uh, some troops right. would go down into the southern part of the trenches, down in the southern area, closer to Switzerland, and um, where it was quite a quiet sector. I see. Mm-hmm. And just to get the you know get, get the kind feel of, for you it. get the yeah. feel for it. Uh, but then, but what we started doing by 1918, because uh, 
30th Division leaves in May of 1918 hmm. to oh, go okay. overseas. Okay. So what happens when we get there, the infantry troops are being sent to the British, which are in the north, to hmm. train. And the artillery troops are being sent to the south because they're going to be using French 75. So the yeah, French are going to train them. Okay. Well, the 30th and the 27th are up there with some other divisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. The British have been hit and hit hard uh, in, in May, June of 1918, mm-hmm. and they're begging for troops. And so Pershing said, okay, those last two divisions I sent you, just keep those. Huh. So that's how. Uh, and so they form. We, but you know, not what we do is we uh, Pershing forms a U.S. Second Corps mm-hmm. and uh, and a staff around that. And so those two divisions essentially serve the rest of the war with the British. How about that? Uh, and there's a you know there's some wonderful pictures of um, because every U.S. soldier was in the 30th Division had been issued a uh, 1903 Springfield. Mm-hmm. This is what they'd trained on. This is, you know, this was an American rifle. And they get over there and, oh, you're turning those in. Uh, And because, I mean, we couldn't send ammunition up there so and supplies. So they're being issued the British infield. Hmm. And there's a wonderful picture of these, you know, Tennessee troops kind of, what in the world? This kind of look on their face. Um, The other thing was is rations. Ah. Uh, The biggest complaint was, you know, these are Americans. Hmm. There's no coffee in the rations. <laughs> you know, there's tea. Who wants tea? Who wants tea? Yeah. And finally, you know, the AEF had to go to the British and say, look, you're going to have to do something. You have got to include some kind of coffee ration with these. How uh, about that? And you see, and there's some pictures of 30th Division troops uh, because as their boots wore out, uh, they were being not being replaced with 1917 hmm. marching boots. They were getting British ammo boots. Hmm. A lot of their uniforms were either being produced by the British or they were just being issued British uniforms outright. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the you know they had this supply protocol and um, uh, there's a book uh, borrowed soldiers by Mitch Jokelson from the National Archives mm-hmm. and the uh, the forward to the book is written by John Eisenhower, President wow. Eisenhower's son. And he said, well, while the 30th and the 27th complained about the rations, he said, at least they got there. <laughs> he said, a lot of the guys in the AEF, when you get into the Meuse-Argonne, he said, uh-huh. you know, they were told, eat your iron ration and maybe it'll get here tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the 30th is up there, and they find, they, they're they trained primarily by the Australians. Hmm. And uh, I've heard one person say, well, that was probably the British thought, well, these are two rebellious groups of people. They should get along well. <laughs> yeah, you know. exactly. Uh, and, you know, several of the British officers had a lot of disdain uh, mm-hmm. for, for us. Uh, we were, you know, some of them looked, viewed us as colonials oh, or, exactly. you know, Johnny-come-latelys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think the Australians didn't. And they seemed to have a higher regard for us. There was a, there was one action where uh, Nathaniel Callan, who was um, uh, commander of the third battalion of the one of the 117th, he and an Australian officer went on a reconnaissance, and that's pretty amazing. A battalion commander and an Australian major. You don't think about that now. Would go on the battalion no, no. commander would actually do the reconnaissance himself in front of and, the trench. I mean, yeah, and, and they no get caught land. out in mm-hmm. no man's land. Oh, in a and it was not a German artillery barrage. It was a British one. And <laughs> Nathaniel Callan said, "I thought he wrote. I thought I could curse the British, but he said I did not realize <laughs> until this major. His name I, I can't remember. The Australian major. <laughs> he said. He said he really turned the air blue that night. Highly colorful." Language. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, that, that's interesting that, uh, that they split off the infantry and our mm-hmm. artillery, went to two different places, mm-hmm. um, with Pershing with this insistence mm-hmm. on an American mm-hmm. army, you know. And yeah. as I understand, Pershing uh, was pretty frustrating to the, the, the other allies, the British and yeah. the French, because he insisted on having an American unit. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we had um, the 29th and the 30th, and their infantry went one way and our artillery went another. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. I think that they, you know, the, the British had never encountered. They, they didn't realize that, you know, Pershing was from Missouri, and, and you know, stubborn as a Missouri mule, and yeah. so I don't think they really, you know, they never encountered that. Well, I know from from what you said before, Pershing, um, John J. Pershing, um, had come up um, old school military, old school mm-hmm. army. Uh, yeah, he'd served. Uh, uh, did he fight? I don't know if he fought in Indian Wars or not. He, he did. He graduated um, West Point, eighteen eighty six. And he was he was at the he was at that cusp. He almost was too old to get his appointment to West Point. Hmm. And there's some speculation that maybe a, a number Something got transposed yeah. on that application. <laughs> but uh, he graduates 1886, and uh, he uh, he serves in the tail end of the Indian Wars. Mm-hmm. He served with the uh, I know he served I think with the Sixth Cavalry, and uh, but he was in the Apache Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also um, tail end of the Sioux. A conflict. Uh-huh. He, um, and he uh, was in the, the uh, well, the, the punitive expedition. And yeah, so Spanish American War. He, uh, you know, uh, serves there, and then he really how he his name became more in you know in the public domain mm-hmm. uh, after the Spanish American War in the Philippines. Hmm. Uh, and he had learned in dealing with the Apaches and dealing with the Sioux, he had learned how to deal with, you know, I don't. I, to use the phrase, but indigenous people, he had mm-hmm. learned how to work with people, mm-hmm. and you know, and a nego- his negotiating skills were much better Pretty than high. a lot of other officers. Yeah. And he pacified entire islands hmm. uh, in the Philippines. There was one case, and this is in World War II. Uh, the USS Houston is the only capital ship we have in the Philippines in December 9th, tenth, nineteen forty-one, after the attack. Mm-hmm. And they had the captain of the ship had. Uh, Captain Rooks had sent the two avia, you know, the two scout planes out, and said, "We'll meet you here." Because he said, "If if we if you come back to the ship, the Japanese will probably follow you to the ship." And so this pilot had landed his float plane in this little bay, and said, "You know, these canoes start coming out." Mm-hmm. And he said, "Wow, this is like the movies." Yeah. And this little leathery man climbs up, you know, and he announces in perfect English that he's the chief of the island. And uh, said that we wish to make war on the Japanese, but we can't. <laughs> and he said, well, why can't you? We wish to make war on the Japanese, but we can't. And so they tow his plane in, and he said, I go into the village in this little hut. And he said, they open up this beautifully carved wooden box, and in there is this document mm-hmm. that these people would never make war ever again without the express written consent of the United States government. <laughs> and he said it was signed by no less a luminary than Major John J. Pershing. John it was J. dated Pershing. like 1903. <laughs> and so he said, I took off my flight clipboard and wrote, I, so-and-so, so-and-so, U.S. Naval Reserve, <laughs> to hereby <laughs> allow the people, a duly no appointed fires. representative of the U.S. government. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, his name, his name was in the, you know, he was known you know, quite well. Yeah, quite, quite well. So, mm-hmm. so really, he was the sort of the best pick as a as a senior commander, or the commander of the armies, I guess. He was one of seven choices hmm. uh, that Wilson had. Well, six, really. Uh, Fred Funston, who was the commander of the Southern Department, uh, 
about a month before the war was declared, uh, Fred dropped over dead with a heart attack. So that mm. takes him out of the mix. Yeah. Um, the so many of the officers. I mean, um, Hugh Scott was the uh, uh, chief staff of the U.S. Army. Uh, he was on a fact-finding mission in Imperial Russia when we declare war. As soon as he comes <laughs> home, he, he announces his retirement. Yeah. Uh, Tasker Bliss was his assistant, and he said, well, you know, if he's retiring, I'm retiring. Uh, now, wow. Bliss does come back to be our, our, our representative on the Supreme War Council. Um, hmm. J. Frederick Bell, who he was the commander of the Presidio and the Army school system as we know it today hmm. was his brainchild. I mean, you know, the command of General Staff College, all yeah, that. Yeah. But uh, J. Frederick Bell's health was, was not good. At, at all, and he knew he knew he couldn't. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he was the man that, for the Plattsburgh camps, coined the phrase "tired businessman's oh, yeah. camps." Um, then you had uh, you had Leonard Wood, and uh, Leonard Wood was a Medal of Honor recipient. He was he was really only Pershing's only competition for the job. How about that? And um, Wood was uh, very well connected politically. Medal of Honor recipient during the Indian Wars. Hmm. Uh, commanded the first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry and in Cuba until he moved up to division command. So they, he's very well connected politically to Theodore. Yeah. But once again, he's not in the best of health. Mm-hmm. And um, Wood had sort of shot himself in, in the foot because he uh, he wasn't, wasn't a man that held his tongue. Uh-huh. And he had very little use for Woodrow Wilson, thought we should have gone in the war in August of 1914. <laughs> and... He would speak to any group of people. He'd go to you. You got a Kiwanis Club, you know, in Decatur, Tennessee. I'm showing up. I'll (laughs) speak, and every one of them he talked about preparing. Now he was the father of the preparedness movement, but you know he was just he sort of made enemies. Yeah, he made enemies, and so Wilson is not going to let someone like that go over. And so you know, Pershing was the was the choice. The choice. Mm -hmm. So and uh, so he goes over and sets this up. I guess yeah. he takes two hundred. I think one hundred ninety-three men go over hmm. with, uh, and, and it's basically just a. Um, it's the command group for what would become mm-hmm. known as the AEF, yeah. American mm-hmm. Expeditionary Force, mm-hmm. and um, they land in France. And uh, uh, oddly enough, uh, you know, this is you know how we can connect the dot in history. Mm-hmm. Two young men who are on the, well, one young man that's with him is a young captain who's in charge of his motorcycle detachment, hmm. and that's George Patton. George Patton. How mm-hmm. about that? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, you, yeah. you play, his chief of staff was a guy by the name of um, General Harbord. Now, Harbord was not a West Pointer. Harbord was, had gone to uh, Kansas State Teachers College <laughs> and then enlisted in the Army, and hmm. then about three years later was commissioned. Uh, after the war, when he retires, he becomes the first chairman of RCA. So, I mean, wow. this, yeah. But uh, Harbord, if you ever get a chance, a wonderful book uh, called Leaves from a War Diary. He didn't write it as a book, per se. He would just write letters to his wife. Mm-hmm. And then when he knew an officer was going back home, he would say, just see to it that my wife gets this. So he, he published all those in a book format years after he retired. But when the ship lands, and they, you know, he, in Harbord writes, he said, the French had no real con. You know, we think about it; it's hard for us to grasp now, because with with TV, with movies, with the internet, it's all out there. But 1917, the French had no concept of the Star Spangled Banner, <laughs> what it was supposed to sound like. I see. So he said 
they played it as a funeral dirge. <laughs> and he said, you know, they kept playing it and playing. And of course, he said, we're having to salute. And then he said, a, 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 an entourage of Frenchmen, French officers and politicians. And they come up the, you know, the gangway up on, and they all want to greet this, you know, this great American warrior, General yeah. Pershing. And he said, so, you know, they would salute and every man had to make this little speech. And he said, you know, at this point in time, you think your arm's going to fall off. Cause, <laughs> and he said, the last little French general that came up to, to greet General Pershing was missing an arm. And, mm-hmm. and, and Harbord writes, we assumed that he had lost the arm due to atrophy from having been in a previous ceremony. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and then the phrase, you know, we hear Lafayette, we are here. Yeah. Which harkens yeah. back to the American Revolution. Uh, Pershing never, he never said that. He never said that. No, he did not. Um, Pershing's French was not as good. Uh, the chief, the, the U.S., well, the War Department before Pershing is sent over, before he knows he's going to be given this command, mm-hmm. at this point he thinks he's going to be given the command of the 1st Infantry Division. Right. And they say, how is your French? Well, I studied French and at, at, at West Point for four years, and I've, right. I've traveled extensively throughout France. I, I think my French is pretty good. His French was atrocious. <laughs> and uh, so what he did was— It seemed like you'd admit that. You know I mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, he—and he, and on the ship going over, they had French classes for oh, these okay. officers. Uh-huh. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, he, he, one of his staff officers who was fluent in French, he made the actual speech where they said, you know, Lafayette, we are here. Oh, okay. Now, uh, Pershing, was he was, very, he was very good at what he did. You know, they visit uh, Napoleon's tomb, and he kneels and kisses the sword and everything, oh, really? okay. you know, totally un, unrehearsed. And, you know, the French are loving it. They can't, you know, the Americans oh, can't yeah, get yeah. through the streets of Paris because they Huge. think, you know, we're here to save them. It's what they think, hmm, you know. Okay. Uh, but yeah, his his French. There was a, a a case later on in 1918, and he loved children. Uh, he had, yeah, he had uh, he had How lost it. He and his wife, uh, uh, they had lost. Well, him and her name was everybody knew her as Frankie. Her name was Frances, and uh, there had been a house fire. They didn't burn, but they were killed by smoke inhalation. And he had lost his wife and three daughters. So he lost his whole family. Mm-hmm. He had one son survive, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Warren. And uh, so, loved children, always did. And uh, he gets down, you know, bends over and speaks mm-hmm. to this little French girl, and she just kind of stands there looking at him. And you know, why don't you answer the general? And her response was, "I would, but I don't know what he said." <laughs> <laughs> Which is, <laughs> you know, it seemed like that. That's such a that's such mm-hmm. an easy thing. To figure out you don't know, you know, and you can't really yeah. hide behind mm, no. speaking a language, you know. <laughs> and and he, um, the 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 photographs we see of Pershing, you always see him. He's ramrod straight. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's wall to wall military. Oh and, yeah. And being around kids and liking kids oh, is yeah. really odd. You know, it's a, yeah. it's an unusual thing to see about a guy like that. You know, so that's kind of cool. You know, uh, he was a. Uh, um Apparently, you know, he was up and they said that when the loss of his, his daughters and his wife almost just broke him. I can imagine. And the punitive expedition really kind of gave him his mojo back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, was he, uh, I guess mm-hmm. he was he was serving at that time. Were they, was he separated from them? Uh, he had been uh, sent to the Southern Command, which was mm-hmm. in Texas, and I they see. were still at the Presidio in San Francisco. Oh, okay. But they were going to join him. Her, his wife, was Frances Warren, Frankie was the daughter of Senator Warren. Hmm. Uh, and her father was a senator from Montana, mm-hmm. and um, 
you know, Pershing had been, you know, like a lot of young officers. He married, I think he was like 40 when they got married, maybe. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, he had been linked with women, you know, different women, you know. And mm -hmm. um, he was a an aide at the, well, we didn't have the Pentagon then, but he was an aide at the War Department. Mm -hmm. And he came home that night after he met her for the first time. And he woke his roommate up and said, I have met the girl that I am going to marry. How about that? And that very night in her diary, she wrote, I met the Captain Pershing tonight. How about that? My, what an elegant dancer. <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of like, wow, this was probably true love. And from all accounts, they were totally devoted to each other. It was really true love. That's so he interesting. Was, he know? was concerned because, I mean, he was from, you know, humble background. Yeah. And he said, you know, I don't have any money. I'm just an, an army officer. And her letter to him was, well, let me tell you this, Mr. Pershing. If you think you're going to stop me, you'd have better luck standing on top of a hill waving a red flag at a bull. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really cool. It's quite, it's quite a story, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he's, um, you know, so he's accustomed to hardship and grief. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. he uh, goes over to France. And I, I can see where mm -hmm. he gets his ability to um, stave off requests that we mm -hmm. just feed people in and yeah. and bolster up lines that are mm -hmm. failing, you know. So he puts our army together. That's kind of fascinating. Uh, these guys, it seems that a lot of these officers, uh, the pre-war army being so mm -hmm. small, they know one another. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's kind of a society there that yeah. all these officers know one another or know of mm -hmm. each other, you know. And then we bring in, um, I know it seems that after war was declared, some of our Ivy League schools would empty mm -hmm. out and a lot of those guys were like Harvard and Yale mm -hmm. and I think there was some there was a couple of Nashvillians uh, uh, um, at Yale or Har well and uh, now like one um, you know the Marine Corps uh, is very small mm -hmm. at this point in time uh, but General Barnett the Commandant of the Corps realizes that you know if the Marine Corps is going to have to play a big role in this or if not when this thing's over with uh, they, you know, they might not have a seat at the table, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. I, my words, not his. But um, so he begins to scour the corps, all these far-flung garrisons and these seagoing uh, detachments, and he pieces together the Fifth Marine Regiment mm -hmm. and offers it up to the War Department. But he knows he needs more, and you know the Marine recruiters—they're out there. Uh, uh, well, I guess they're working. They're, they're beating walking yeah. Johns are everywhere. Walk, <laughs> one walking John, I think, had a. Well, they were going to box a bear in Times Square or something, you know, <laughs> and uh, but had to have officers because what he was doing initially was he was commissioning real qualified NCOs hmm. to become really? officers. Really? Well, you know, he, he can't deplete his NCO ranks because he's going to have a ga leadership gap. So this was really clever on their part. They sent out recruiting teams of officers to hmm. every major university hmm. when they get there. Their job is to get an audience with the president of that university. Wow. When they get there, they tell that president, if you'll give us the names of 10 to 12 student leaders, mm -hmm. the United States Marine Corps is prepared to give them a direct commission in the United States Marine Corps. Wow. Well, one of the universities they go to is Yale. Hmm. And um, Yale, two Nashvillians are at Yale at the time, and, that, and their names are on that list that the president gives. One hmm. is John Overton uh, because he was the captain of the Yale track team. Really? He was considered the fastest collegiate miler. 
And some people have said that they felt that he may have, would have been, had he lived, he would have probably been the first person to break the four-minute mile. John Overton. John Overton. There were, there were people that speculated that. Uh-huh. Now, the other one was Sam Meek. Mm-hmm. Sam Meek was from here, and he was the editor of the Yale newspaper. <laughs> uh, now, you know, oddly enough, one of his young writers on the Yale newspaper was a young man by the name of Henry Luce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they're both commissioned in the Marine Corps. And uh, I forgot what company Meek is assigned to. He might have been the 79th company, but uh, John Overton is assigned to the 80th company mm-hmm. of the Marines, mm-hmm. gets their mm, tail end of the uh, Bella Wood campaign, and uh, unfortunately he's killed at Soissons. Soissons. How about uh, that? Uh, he um, uh, apparently was well-loved by everybody, well-liked by his troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a young man from Texas A&M named Carl Brannan who dropped out of college to join the Marines, and years later, at the behest of, of Texas A&M, he wrote a little you know, sort of pamphlet or whatever about his time in service. And after he died, his son and, and daughter, you know, and another man wrote, you know, finished it out. But the interesting thing is, is Carl Brandon's son wrote that if my sister, my younger sister, had cooperated and been born a boy, she would have been named John Overton Brandon. Wow. He said that's wow. the level of respect that my father had for that man. And Carl Brandon wrote that he said – he referred to him as Mr. Overton, mm-hmm. was in front of us, and apparently American officers had sort of begun to affect that British style of a pistol in one hand and their you know, riding crop or stick in the other. Mm-hmm. And Overton had his forty five in his right hand, his stick in his left hand, and he turned around and was walking backwards, and uh, Carl Brandon said, I couldn't hear what he said, but it, I, I assumed it was words of encouragement. And when he turned back around, piece of shrapnel basically through the heart. Hmm. And I know that uh, Major Robert Denning wrote uh, to his parents that it was basically right through the heart and that he didn't... Uh, didn't suffer no. anything. He just he died right and, there. And, when he, you know, and, of course, this was the Overton family, but when you look at some of the uh, collection on him, mm-hmm. uh, the letters of condolences, I mean, it's pretty interesting. I mean, there was a letter from Senator Prescott Bush Wow, really? And, you know, that's uh, really? President Bush, the first the father. First, yeah. Um, there was a letter from General Harbord, hmm. uh, and, uh, he, who apparently had known the family from somewhere before because he said, I'm, I, I, I hate that we have to make our reacquaintance in, on, over such a matter. Wow. So he and, was well, I mean, he was well-liked very well and, loved, yeah. and sociable uh, and all that stuff. Hmm? That's interesting. But he was, and he was um, a direct commission in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, now, Sam Meek. Uh, uh, was you know he he survived Sam survives the war comes home, and uh, he's actually interviewed in the Barry book called uh, To Make the Kaiser Dance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and he mentions Overton in there, and then there's another book. Um, uh, Overton pops up in several books in the on Marine Corps history. One of the best ones is uh, the Limit of Endurance, which is a history of the Sixth Marine Regiment by mm-hmm, Lieutenant mm-hmm. Colonel Peter Owens. Um, there's another Tennessean. A young man uh, from Kate's Landing over in West Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And back then, you didn't, you know, nowadays a kid goes to college, they major in history or political science, whatever, graduate, take the LSAT, go to law school. Mm-hmm. In those days, you didn't. You went to college, majored in law, got your degree after four years, then you studied for the bar. Mm-hmm. Well, this young man, he'd played football for UT. And, uh, you know, one of, his, one of his classmates wrote that, well, said, you know, 
Cliff liked to have his fun, and he didn't believe that schoolwork should get in the way of that. <laughs> but he had managed to graduate. He was living in the fraternity house, studying for the bar. And wars declared, 1917. And he's talking with um, uh, one of a, a friend of his, John Ayers. And John Ayers' father was Brown Ayers, which if you know anything about UT, Ayers Hall, that you know iconic building on the hill. Oh, okay. Uh, but John Ayers said, well, you know, Cliff... Said, uh, Dad says the Marines are going to be here next week. Why don't you talk to them? <laughs> you know, once again, this Marine recruiting team yeah, coming out. Yeah. You know, the, they even came to UT. And Cliff stood there with a blankly and looked at John Ayers and said, "The Marines? Who's that?" <laughs> and then the man was Cliff Clifton Bledsoe Cates. Clifton B. Cates. Uh, he's commissioned the Marine Corps. Uh, serves in the 96th company. As Carl Brandon said, he was the most optimistic man he'd ever met in his life. <laughs> That's 1917. 1947, Cliff Cates is named the 19th Commandant of the Marine Corps. How so he that? goes from not even not knowing who the Marines are <laughs> to 30 years later being the Commandant of the Corps. <laughs> now, that's pretty cool. <laughs> only, and I, in, only in America. Yeah, yeah only in America, yeah. <laughs> That's cool, Mark. It really is. Um, Somehow I hear Yakov Smirnov saying, I love this country. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know, you know. It's cool. So um, uh, between Meek and Overton and, uh, well, I guess Overton, um, so he was killed over there. Did he Did he stay there? Did we bring a lot of Tennesseans back, or was there a program to bring people um, back? Or, uh, you know, the, the British and the French were great believers in you stay, you you know where you fell, that's where you stayed. And, you know, the British sort of had a bit of an attitude of like, well, you know, we have a cemetery here. It's a little bit of the empire. empire uh, but um, the Americans, we, early on, you know, we said we will bring the bodies back. And uh, this caused a bit of a hubbub because people were, you know, the sons were being killed. Why isn't my boy being brought back? I see. And, oh, okay. you know, and Pershing's right. attitude was we don't have the, the shipping space, hmm. you know, to, to bring bodies back now. So once the war's over with, um, the, the the family is given one of three choices, and the, the War Department would contact the father. If the father was deceased, they would contact the mother, hmm. or they would contact the wife. And I think the wife took precedence over the mother. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But um, Dr. Lisa Boudreau with the Tennessee War Museum has got a wonderful book about the repatriation of the bodies. Oh, okay. And in it, you had one of three choices. Your, your son could remain buried in an American military cemetery mm-hmm. in Europe, your son could be brought back to uh, Arlington because at this point we're really Arlington is being expanded because that's going to be our national war cemetery, mm-hmm. and then hmm. the third category, your son will you know, the, at government expense your body will be brought back or his body will be brought back to home mm-hmm. you know his home of record, uh, you know some people it just depended you know the, it was a family thing, mm-hmm. uh, some people you know I mean yeah, the. Some people felt like a tree should uh, lay, you know, lay where it falls, so to speak, yeah, and yeah. others others wow. didn't. Oh, uh, John Overton's body was returned back here to Nashville. Mm-hmm. So, so you could um, our government would bring mm-hmm. them home if mm-hmm. the family decided to do that. Yeah. but it mm-hmm. was up to the family really whether they want to be left. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and there was I guess after the war there was an American cemetery there. And, yeah, and I mean we have a number. Of, we mm-hmm. still have a number of American cemeteries there from World War One. And interestingly enough, uh, in World War II, the Germans displayed an, an unusual amount of respect for those mm-hmm. cemeteries. I think there was only damage that was done. At, well, I 
I'm, I'm probably wrong about this, but I have read where the one American cemetery, one monument, there was a slight damage to it, and it was a, it was a, from a fragment of an artillery shell, and oddly enough, it was an American artillery shell. <laughs> <laughs> We're at it again, mm-hmm. you know. Well, you know, it's it's interesting how all this starts, and uh, we get we get into this war with Germany, you know, and um, uh, we can. I'd like to come back and visit this uh, other times with you. As yeah, far sure, as, um, I'd love to. Later this year, and um, you know, especially around November of next year, it'll be the yeah. the, the centennial mm-hmm. of um, uh, the end of the war. And this, it seems like this war has set so many. Uh, precedence for the American military. You know, before yeah. this, it seems like we're this small little force, mm-hmm. and the government is, or the people actually, are kind of. We're not really sure we want a big army, but mm-hmm. we've got our militias, and we can vol- we can raise mm-hmm. volunteers, and then by the end of this, you know, we're a major player really on the world stage. I mean, we went to the peace conferences, and yeah. and it seems like a lot of things got started in this war that. That, that carry on. You can you can play connect the dot back to a lot of different things yeah. uh, that happened later on in the 20th century and connect them back to the events, um, you know, during the war from 1914 to 1918 and then up through the peace conference. That's know? pretty cool, you know. Because, you know, I mean, there was a young uh, young cook in, in Paris that desperately wanted to meet with Wilson mm-hmm. uh, because he wanted freedom from his, his, his people and, you know, wrote a letter and, you know, we know him now as Ho Chi Minh. Really? Yeah. How about and, that? Uh, he was in yeah. Paris. He was in Paris as a cook. Uh, as a cook. I think it was. I, I believe he was a cook at a hotel. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> uh, you know, and you're, like, you're talking about John Overton. He passed Sam Meek that morning. Hmm. You know, the, the, his platoon passed through Meeks. And mm-hmm. Overton said, well, if I should fall today and get my pen back to mother. How about and that? he said, we just laughed about it. And then it, what it was, Sam Meek and John Overton were both in Skull and Bones oh. Society at Yale. And so whenever one of Meek's uh, Marines said, uh, sir, your Mr. Overton has been killed. And there was a Macon Overton in the same company. Oh, oh no, no, it had to be this other man. Yeah. And they said, no, it's your Mr. Overton, sir. How and so that? he said he gathered up a couple of other Marine officers, mm-hmm. and they went out, and he retrieved the pen, and it was sent back to his mother hmm. through the Red Cross. Really? Uh, but, you know, it was kind of very um, – and yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I like you look at the pictures, and you, you can find them online and in some books. Um, Theodore Roosevelt's youngest son, Quentin, mm-hmm. as an aviator, is killed, and uh, the Germans showed an immense amount of respect for him. Had mm-hmm. a military funeral for him. So, uh, so well, I guess they knew of the Roosevelts. Yeah, and, uh, and, and this kind of how things had deteriorated in Germany on the political front by 1918. Uh, one of the German Papers, I think it was the Berlin paper, mm-hmm. had a full page, you know, both sides. And on this side, it had the picture of Theodore in the center and all of his sons and what they were doing in the war. And they're all serving in combat in some form or another. Wow. You know, two sons are in the 1st Infantry Division, one son's with the British in Mesopotamia, Quentin's an aviator. Hmm. And on this side, you've got the Kaiser sons. How about and they're that? all field marshals and aides to generals, and they've never really had a shot fired at them in anger. <laughs> and it was like, how do you? And the, the pretty gutsy move on a paper when yeah. you figure the Kaiser, what kind of power he had. Yeah. But you know, you know, this is America, and you know, what's wrong with us? What's, our you know, our leaders' sons don't fight. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, well, you know. Um, well, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, no problem. And I enjoyed it. With it. And Mark, it's been great. And um, we'll come back to visit this some. I know, you know, there's a, there's so many things that can come out of this as far as, uh, yeah. 
uh, how you know Nashvillians in it and Tennesseans, mm-hmm. and or, I want to come back and talk to you about our Medal of Honor winners. Oh yes, like for that, sure. You know? So yeah, they, uh, the thirtieth division had five from Tennessee, which is pretty remarkable for mm-hmm. one division to have five. And you really, Medal when you think winner. about it, how the short amount of time they were in combat. Well, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about three months, maybe? Four? Uh, well, really, uh, all five Medal of Honor the acts that that you know mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. the for the recipients were between September twenty ninth and October eighth. Wow, that's, so that's pretty interesting for one brigade. That's about a week. Yeah, the, the yeah. one brigade, the fifty ninth wow. Infantry Brigade, to have that many. That many. Uh-huh. That's pretty interesting. You know, yeah. and these are these are Tennesseans. Tennesseans, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have. Um, um, well, of course, Alvin York, but then uh, we had our famous see, one. And then I uh, see Joseph B. Atkinson was from around Memphis, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Milo Lemert was originally from Iowa, but he was living in Crossville mm-hmm. when he in, in, in was called up, and he was in the, in the National Guard from there. Uh, there was um, Edward R. Talley and uh, John Calvin Ward and Buck Carnes. So there were five. Let's see, there were five in addition to. York. York. So there mm-hmm. was six, actually. Yeah. That's pretty mm-hmm. interesting. And I guess, um, well, I guess York got the fame from the, the movie with these other guys, you know, the, oh. the what was it? With uh, 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 Gary Cooper, I think. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Alvin York. But the the other guys. Just, b- were just basically obscure. Just kind of came back oh. and went back to their normal lives, I guess. Yeah, no, Milo Lemert was actually killed. So uh-huh. he didn't okay. survive the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, Atkinson, I don't know anything really about him. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, Edward R. Talley came home. He had actually been in the army before, mm-hmm. but hmm. uh, he came home and uh, I think ran some grocery stores and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> uh, but John Calvin Ward is really the sad, the, the sad story because. Mm-hmm. We didn't. They didn't understand the phrase. Uh, P, you know what we know now is PTSD. Oh yeah. Uh, and and we say people, American troops, doughboys would say shell shock. And actually, uh, the British Tommy came up with that phrase, and it wasn't meant the way we took it. And I mean, hmm. shell shock meant kind of getting your bell rung for a minute. You know. Oh. You know, like in the cartoon characters, the star oh, spinning yeah. around your head. Um, they meant something. That's what Re- they meant. Yeah, kind of like you know, yeah. man, I got hit in the head. Yeah. Um, but uh, we took it to mean something else. But hmm. uh, uh, yeah, John Calvin Ward was really it was really pitiful because he he couldn't he couldn't fit in. Mm-hmm. He he just couldn't, uh, and he ended up uh, committing suicide years later. Hmm. And uh, uh, well, and two Tennesseans that you know that we know have written a book about Ward and Tally because mm-hmm. uh, called Forgotten Heroes, mm-hmm. uh, and they're. Uh, uh, Hamblin County in Upper East Tennessee can actually claim, you know, because both of them had lived there, mm-hmm. so they can actually claim that they had two, two Medal, Medal of Honor recipients that have lived there. That's now birthwise, no, but yeah, that they yeah, had lived there. Actually, lived yeah. there. well, all, so all these guys uh, they brought, uh, came back after the war. Mm-hmm. Or they were brought back, or yeah, okay, yeah. Um, 30th Division comes home. Uh, most of the Tennessee troops are mustered out at Fort Oglethorpe, we're right outside mm-hmm. of Chattanooga, and. I know, like with the one seventeenth, they were in a parade in Knoxville. There were parades here. Uh, I think that somebody said the parade in Nashville. There was a hundred thousand people. They said, yeah, you know, which you can imagine how big Nashville was at the time. You it's, know, you know it's mean, a pretty small town, and had, yeah. So it sounds like it was a real homecoming. You know, it was. Our troops you know. had a real. Mm-hmm. You know, we've saved democracy. You know? Yeah, and and yeah. you know the the 30th Division, they're credited with uh, breaking the Hindenburg Line, uh-huh. which was this you know. 
the, the, everybody had tried and failed. And uh, we're given that, you know, we're credited with breaking that in breaking less than water. a day, you know, the tunnels at Bellacor. And amazing. you see some of the pictures of the defenses, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, wow. Well, they've you know. had four years to dig in. So. Yeah. You know, I mean, you yeah. did German bunkers on that, uh, on the Western Front, a lot of them had lights, mm-hmm. they had running water, they had, <laughs> they had concrete floors. I mean, the Germans, after, after the Marne, you know, when the Germans pull back, mm-hmm. they're like, okay, we'll just wait them out. So they begin, you know, and then the Germans, you know, so with their pension. To stay. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, they're good engineers. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they, you know, they were very, they were there to stay, you know. How about that? You okay. could, they could rotate uh, units in and out, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so it was, you know, they had cooked kitchens underground and everything. So they, well, they had, a, yeah, it was in depth mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Much in depth. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Well, listen, um, I guess today I just wanted to say thanks for coming. Well, thank you for and, having me. Oh, sure, Mark. And uh, any last thing about uh, the early part of the war? You know? uh, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty interesting how um, we ramped up so quickly mm-hmm. and got an American force together. And, um, you know, we kind of um, – we're kind of – it seems like before the war we were sort of a uh, – um, uh, a, sort of a lazy 19th century outlook yeah. to, to the military. And then mm-hmm. after this, you know, we really have a presence. So it's kind of kind of interesting, you know. It is. And you can, like I said, a lot of young men, um, George Marshall, who was actually a first division officer who um, had some people thought the impertinence and some people thought the guts. <laughs> and some people thought, well, there goes Marshall's career, uh, to question Pershing on something. Early really? on, really, and they said that he would. After that, when he would visit the first division, he would come to Pershing, and a Pershing would come to him and say, "So what's going on? Really, I want to know." Really, and he pulled, you know, and, and, and Marshall desperately wanted to command men in the field of battle, hmm. and he ends up being a plan. He plans our first offensive at Cantigny. I mean, it was his 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 deal. Yeah, and you begin when you read some of the offensives that he planned for the first army and for the AEF on staff. You see the imprint of this young man growing. And then yeah. by World War II, uh, but the measure of respect that he had for Pershing, he would go just about weekly during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, by 1941, John J. Pershing is pretty much a permanent resident at um, Walter Reed. I see. He's pretty- and um, a car would come around there at the Pentagon. Hmm. A young you know, captain would put all these charts and graphs and maps and everything in the back seat. Uh-huh. George Marshall would climb in and drive to Walter Reed. And he would about every week to two weeks he would give a briefing to John that? J. Pershing on the conduct of the war. That's yeah. pretty cool. He Marshall was uh, chief of staff. I mean, chief of staff, like yeah, right hand man to Roosevelt. Yeah, you know, and the Joint Chiefs, and you know he. Uh, but you know, the, the, it was the measure of respect that he had cool. for him as a man. Cool. And when he dies, uh, you have all these five stars that hmm. come to the funeral, and it begins to rain, and they're marching, they're walking, and. Uh, you know, Harry Truman had decreed that um, that when they when he entered uh, Arlington, they were not to play the the presidential. They were not to fire the presidential salute. They would fire the salute for General Pershing. That's it. And it begins to rain. And Dwight Eisenhower looks at Omar Bradley and said, "You think we should get the car?" And Omar Bradley, looking straight ahead, doesn't even glance at Eisenhower and said, "Not for Black Jack Pershing, we're not." <laughs> um, the night before. Pershing's body had lain in state at the Capitol. Really? And the next day, the public would be able to come in to pay their respects. And, of course, you know, we've seen all the pictures of the different bodies that have been in the rotunda. 
And, you know, that night in walks Harry Truman. Hmm. And, of course, all these young guards snap to, and Harry Truman says, no, no. Hmm. I, I, I don't come here tonight as the president. I come here as a former captain of field artillery to pay his final respects to his commanding officer. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so and the level of that's the level of respect that Pershing it, had, even it, at the end. Mm, even at the you know, end, when he's kind of you're kind of out of the loop. Yeah, know? he picked his place at um, at Arlington. Somebody, you know, they were like, "Well, where do you want to be buried?" Mm-hmm. And he's Pershing Hill. Is what it's Pershing called Hill. now. How about that? And cool. um, he uh, he said, "I want to be there." It was he. He said. Right there, hmm. right there. That's fine with me. I want to be with my troops when the final trumpet sounds. How about that? Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. Well, listen, Mark. Well, hmm. I want to thank you so much for being well, here today. Enjoyed uh, it. Appreciate you coming by, and um, look forward to the next time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Great, man. Thanks. Hmm.